City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T. We're grateful for their generous support. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Vikram Sundaram, a junior at Solon High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. It's April 28th and you're watching a virtual Youth Forum. I'm happy to introduce today's forum, a conversation regarding healthcare disparities in Cleveland, which have been particularly pronounced in the last two years. As part of his political campaign, President Joe Biden laid out the groundwork for significant leaps and change in healthcare. President Biden issued nearly 40 executive orders during his first 100 days in office, about 12 of which were specifically targeted to address changes in healthcare. Some orders made way for easier access to Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act, while others directed secretar secretaries of various governmental agencies to review policies currently in place, with some being rewritten or purged altogether. While a step in the right direction, those seeking healthcare reform believe tackling such issues should be more aggressive. Locally, and despite being home to some of the best healthcare facilities in the world, Ohio ranks 47th out of 50 states for healthcare. Ohio's ranking is largely the result of socioeconomic inequalities, such as access to healthcare, childhood adversity and trauma, and access to healthcare, among other issues as well. Also, several cities around the United States, including Cleveland, have declared racism to be a public health crisis. But what do these proclamations mean on the state, regional, and local levels? Joining us today to discuss these issues and more are Dr. Eric Shiray, PhD of Indiana University, and Heather A. Stroll, Vice President of External Staff Affairs at the Sister of Charity Health System. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at City Club Youth. We'll try to work them in. Here to, here to guide our discussion is Youth Forum Council member Zoe Ellenbogen, a junior at Shaker Heights High School. Zoe, I turn the forum over to you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for the amazing introduction. Um, as he mentioned, he talked about Ohio specifically. So I thought to start this off, um, maybe you could talk about some kind of unique challenges that are specific to Ohio, Cleveland, just that general area. Either one of you can start take this question. Uh, Eric, I, I'm happy to start. And if you would like to join, um, I, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm glad that the Health Policy Institute of Ohio was uh, mentioned as part of the introduction um, as it really is a, a great source of uh, information around uh, how does how is Ohio ranking um, in health value? And they just released released the 2021 report. Um, and as it was mentioned, 40, we are 47th in the nation. Um, and so why did we get there? I think we have to look at um, some really important um, aspects. Uh, equity. Uh, how are we, um, how are Ohioans um, experiencing poor 
poorer outcomes and living, living shorter lives because of policies, systems, and beliefs that discriminate against and unfairly, unfairly limit access. How are we investing in the public health infrastructure and prevention? And how are we addressing childhood adversity and trauma? Uh, we know that more than four in 10 Ohio children have experienced trauma and adversity. And so we must do better to uh, really go upstream and address um, the health disparities impacting Ohioans. Uh, Dr. Shara, if you want to chime in here. Um, yeah, I think, I think um, like um, Heather said, it's really important. I think you can make, you can make monetary allocation for access, but I think access is not the only way um, to um, address healthcare issues because when you give people access to have medical um, services, be at hospital and stuff, they don't leave there. They don't um, stay there. But I think the structural condition, the social processes and the factors that affect everyday experiences of people, I think if you're not doing so much in that respect from preventive standpoint, um, and you give access in a context where healthcare is a corporate, um, um, uh, a billion dollar corporate industry, you are actually still distributing money indirectly to a lot more people, but you're not focusing so much about um, addressing the inequity issues that is affecting so many people in there. And, and, and then the other thing is that is also important um, that um, if we're going to be able to, Ohio in particular, I think in as much as it is really up on the radar, I think it's similar across this country in, in many respects. And part of it, you know, it's the issue about not just passing laws. These are um, structures that are centuries mm -hmm. years old. And so how they came to be the way that they are, are important and beyond just law. And how those processes have evolved have also the laws interactions with different practices, socialization, teaching, and in and all kinds of stuff that have um, over the years um, converged to produce the kinds of the in disparities in healthcare that we, we see. So if you pass law and there's nothing that is done into the communities, the localities, like when we think about how certain people are segregated into areas where they have limited access to even water, just running water, um, where they, they live in communities that are not safe. They can't even get a chance to go and, and have a green space or have a walking space because the neighborhood is dangerous and they are kept in home, such people, even hospitals or doctors prove, I mean, um, prescribe certain health recommendations, like just mere exercise, they can do it. So if, if you invest in the access area where we pay for the providers, but don't do anything to the factors that are important in determining when people can get sick and when they're sick, whether they can recover quickly or they can die early. I think those are some of the important pieces that 
um, the law need to um, expand into. Heather, if you want to follow up on that. Well, I just want to um, applaud the Youth Council. Um, you know, we talk about health disparities and we've, we forget that really youth play a critical role in informing policy and really thinking about how can we do better as healthcare providers, as systems of, of healthcare. Um, and I, I just encourage everyone to get engaged because everything that the doctor talked about, you could you can help influence and you can get engaged to talk about. Um, there's a lot of research that have suggested that if youth get engaged in health policy and health reform conversations, it has a direct influence on um, improving health outcomes. Well, thank you. I guess I will say thank you for the Youth City Club. Um, so going as we kind of all know, there's been a virus going on. So uh, it was mentioned earlier in the introduction what kind of both of your roles were. Do you want to talk about how COVID has kind of obviously had some impact, whether negative or positive, on your work? Either of you can take this. I think you can go if you want. You well, you know, I'm going to talk about it from a community perspective um, versus um, a provider's perspective. We know that the the more we can get vaccinated, the better we are as a community. And it has been a, a challenge to get everyone um, vaccinated, especially in in um, in underserved communities and in minority communities, we are seeing lower vaccination rates. Um, where um, Sisters of Charity is located, we're in the central neighborhood of the city of Cleveland. We've had some of the high, lowest, I'm sorry, lowest vaccination rates. And for me, it's about trust and building trust with community. And you're seeing the, the direct impact of a lack of trust in getting folks um, vaccinated. And from my perspective, we can, um, we can advise folks as much as we want about what we want people to do, but we need true engagement and trust to be able to um, have a healthier community. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it's 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 important the trust piece, and I think one of the pieces that you know we see, yes, the the COVID has really um, impacted life in so many ways, but we also know that the impact in terms of its um, morbidity, mortality, and even the economic and cycles, um, psychological impact of the mitigation measures have also been disproportionately um, on different groups of people, um, immigrant, racial minorities, the elderly, those experiencing homelessness, and um, um, those who are working in other areas like restaurants or other small scale businesses. And so you're looking at that. And so then you, you, you look at it again, it comes back to how as a society, our structures have been created in such a way that they unevenly distribute benefit and burden um, in, in such a way that it maintain a hierarchy. You know, and, and I think that's um, um, important piece. And so because of that, it has, has also become very difficult. I think it's one of the reasons why you see um, lack of trust 
in in this process because I think when we know in a system where historically, um, in order to sustain the hierarchy and how um, informations have been distributed, that are also even unevenly been done. And, and so then it comes down to the question of by the time I get this information and by the time I get this access, is it really about my benefit or is it even about to still perpetuate the same um, inequities that we have been thinking about? And then, I mean, that we have experienced, then you also think about even the processes by which the, say, even when the scene became available, the processes by which the scene were administered. I think, one, granted, you, we, we, we are doing this and we're trying to um, build trust. Sometimes, instead of going through some of the protocols, sometimes we could even, we could have flipped it. Like, for instance, before you have to make an appointment, provide your information and stuff before you get vaccinated. Why not sometimes, like, after getting people vaccinated, then you take all those information that you need to get from them. Because sometimes, once you are making the appointment and people are making that, that's where that also can generate some of the mistrust because it's like, okay, once I give you my information, um, this, I'm this, this is my race, this is my background, how am I sure something else is not going to happen in the process of that? Because you already um, know as I'm coming in, this is the person who is coming, this is the person who is coming. And so if, if, we can reduce in as much as we want to address the issues i think we need to think about how to ensure that we decolonize the way we do some of these things so that we don't maintain the pattern that we have seen because the historical trust that we have seen even though they are history but they are still repeating themselves and so most of the mistrust are justifiable in a lot of ways you know but our goal is how do we and credibility. And if we're gonna do that, then we don't have to maintain the way things have been historically. Then I think on top of the pandemic, you are also seeing all of the kinds of the brutalities and in the police killings and all of those pieces, you know, happening. So you are looking at this and then you are seeing that it's honestly, yes, the pandemic is a global issue, but I think what was more deadly and violence is the inbuilt features of our society, you know, both even in our knowledge system and how we deliver services and how we treat people. I think the pandemic um, for a long time, we know this, but I think many people seem not to care or were in denial. And some who also knew it, I think, um, was silent. But I think the pandemic really casts a more spotlight on the structural inequities that are even more deadly than even the pandemic. Because sometimes some people had no choice. Um, the choice of even um, staying home was even more deadly than being exposed to the pandemic. And one of the things that earlier on the pandemic showed, if Right in the heydays of the pandemic, you will go to just near grocery supermarket 
and you will see toilet papers were um, out. Most areas you get there and you see the shelves were empty. Why? A lot of people who had more resources at a time could buy them in box. And, and by the time those who were maybe getting a weekly check who couldn't even buy them in box got there, um, they didn't have anything to buy, you know. And then, you know, at that time, we were thinking about the fact that your, the higher your, your exposure to it actually increased the, the risk. So imagine I am living in the same community with you and then you had the means to buy all the tea row in the same supermarket that we all go. Then I got there, I didn't have, so I had to go to the nearest place that I got. And the more I exposed myself to um, areas that were likely to be infected, then I got my tea row, but I came back to the same community. And guess what? The next day, the virus, I mean, is spreading in that same community, you know, but if, if, the those bulk purchases were curtailed a little bit that would not have happened and i saw at some point most supermarket and grocery stores began to notice that so now you go there then they'll have limit you have you know how much that you can buy and i think that also showed us that we can make some changes things don't have to be the way that they are so i think in in both negative and positive way it has brought us to understand a whole lot of things, but then the question comes down to, are we going to learn from the lessons or we're just going to just let things be with just our mere statement? Um, I think those were a lot of really great points. And I definitely agree with you that the um, stockpiling that occurred during the earlier parts of the pandemic was just problematic in so many different ways. Um, I guess a very similar question I have for you both, and you also touched on this a little bit with the police brutality, along with COVID, with the administration change, would, would you have, say you've noticed, a, especially because you both kind of talked about this aspect of trust with the vaccine, would you say you've noticed an improvement or lack of improvement under Biden's administration versus the prior? And this is really, again, either of you, it does not matter. Um, you know, I think in some respect, I think when it comes to, I think the, you know, when when the Biden administration got in some of the the earlier, you know, passed the executive orders and the policy-wise, I think a lot, but I, but I think one of the things that we have to understand that this is just is beyond just a mere um, one political party or an action of a president or just um, I think a momentary issue, and and you you could see even um, because of the pandemic we got all kinds of statement from almost every profession, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association um social work universities and all kinds of things made statement acknowledging well we got a systemic problem here and, and and that all of those things were um done i think the question is now we are two years here into the pandemic um what are we what are we still seeing i think that's where some of the questions are and we have also now created a whole lot about 
diversity and equity inclusion um, positions almost everywhere. For me, I think the question is that we live in a society that is structured to maintain um, the white social contract, but we have not done much to what do we do with this contract, you know, and in this contract flows in how we do things in our universities, our practices, our approaches. And I think as a society, to be honest, we are culturally traumatized by structural racism, both, and oftentimes the narrative have been, oh, let's go to communities of color and help them, listen to them, save them. But here's the case where if I am trapped in the very thing that gives me the lenses with which I look at things and I am not liberated from it, how much help can I give to people only then to make myself as a savior to them, which still diminish the very things around empowerment? You know, and so the degree to which we decenter white racial framing that make us to see everything in that lens and misrecognize all other things that do, does not come in that shape and how our institutions, organizations, and procedures are built around these kinds of the same framing. So until we begin to recognize that and know that there are multiple ways we can approach some of these issues that we are talking about, I think the policies and everything they do. But in terms of the long-term effect, um, I'm not convinced at this point. Um, no, I think that's definitely a very good point about kind of just how the white saviorism mindset just infects, if you will, um, every little aspect. Heather, if you want to add or for follow up on that. Well, it's really hard to follow up after him. Um, really, I would say, again, um, I'm I'm not going to repeat everything you said. It was just wonderful. I guess it's a call to action to this group, right? We saw social isolation. We saw trauma, both from you know COVID, from the um, from the, um, the terrible incidents um, that happened um, the last two years. And uh, it, but but you all can make change, right? You all could learn from this experience. What what did we find in the healthcare environment? People wanted to be seen by people like that looked like themselves, right? So I encourage everybody to think about all that we've experienced and say, how do you think about career paths that um, that might help to to open new doors and look at fresh perspectives how do we improve um social connections and and um and build build relationships with different communities and and people who are not like us right and so um and how do we um elevate public health in some of those what i call more systemic ways that we create community change don't go downstream, go upstream, try to um, really try to help um, make this world a better place because you have the power, you're the next generation. So it's my message will really be a call to action to you to learn from this and, 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 and help us be better. Um, I think that's definitely, that's very meaningful. Um, I guess my question following that conversation would be, so 
you both touched on why there's this lack of trust and how these kind of band-aid solutions to use another medical analogy aren't really working in terms of looking to the future with healthcare reforms like where where do you hope to see the u.s shift towards within the next like 5 10 30 years well, I have strong opinions about that, but I don't have to go uh, uh, go first. Eric, if you'd like to go, um, feel free. I feel like I talk too much. Well, I think, um, and I, I think this is where I think the youth also come in here, because you know I think, for the most part, too, our health approach has been from a deficit approach, and by logical, I mean determinist base that narrow what health is. I think health is beyond, you know, um, um, only biological issues and stuff. The environmental conditions are so important. Um, when you look at even some of the things that have brought a lot of medical innovations, or uh, really, they didn't come from laboratory. They came from the experiences that people were living, like in the context where people were living in slave-like conditions with limited ventilation, no hygienic conditions, and um, very, I think, oppressive contexts that allow us to see, oh, if people are in these contexts, these are what happens, and these are what it is. So I think um, epidemiologically, we have seen and we know historically um, experiences from prisons, experiences from veterans, experiences from um, those in 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 um, conditions that are not hospitable, and like what we've seen even in the pandemic. I mean, what pandemic the pandemic has shown us have shown. Um, we've seen that public health is broader than just biological issues. And we need to, I think, understand a lot of the sociocultural processes that are structurally, that are institutionalized, and those are th that are important to understand health. But most importantly, I think, understanding people and youth, like you folks, it's so important because now almost we know the pandemic has generated a whole lot of stuff that everybody has experienced, in, but that doesn't mean that, oh, everybody is so weak and feeble that you know we have to just come and save everybody i think um we need to understand what builds social resilience how do people cope and how do they adapt and how can we leverage on those things to engage in a transformative to build the transformative capacities of communities and i think you like you guys are amazing group because your voices are important and the need to even be in a society where I think most of the time people think that, oh, if parents are working hard and they get you all of this latest iPhone, the shoes and everything, you're okay. But the connection and the, the emotional bonding, the support and all of those things are so important to, to build a healthy, um, people and a healthy community. But we capitalism, racist capitalism have denied many 
parents the privilege to even be around their children. And many youth and children, the privilege to be bonded with their families and be connected. And that, you know, affect a whole lot of different life experiences and trajectories that sometimes in the end, you know, affect health. Look at our prison systems. I think it's um, something that we have to think about, I think. And so here, I think one of the things that we have to also think about is that we have to think about the fact that these institutions and organizations are not in silos. They are interconnected. Schools are connected. Like you see how the school to prison pipeline um, and how that connect to the criminal system, the hospitals, the mental health and health organizations. So I think um, the youth, we also need to help build up the system where our knowledge base that some of you are getting should no longer be that silo. We need to be able to prepare them and build their capacity to think more systemic and structurally to become agent of change, not as somebody who are just, um, I think, so dependent on the structure and think in a silo ways. So those are really important um, kinds of the things that we have to begin to think about, you know, moving forward and, and think more broadly um not just in our silo ways as we have been doing because we know that doesn't really help in the midst of epidemic or pandemic no you said you want to add yeah i do i i guess i would summarize if i had to do three things um number one and some of this was alluded um by eric but number one we talked about race equity the best way to um to start having new conversations around race equity is actually listening and having authentic dialogue, having um, a, a, a participatory process where we're both engaged in, whether it's in your own healthcare, it's in your own community planning, it's around healthcare reform. We, we can't always think we all have all the answers. So we have to do authentic, what we call authentic um, community engagement and authentic listening. Um, so that's like, first. And if we don't do that, you can't get to the next two. The, the second is we have to think about every uh, uh, how we care for for people very differently. We always talk about health care, but it really should include social services. We're one whole being. We're we're physical, we're emotional, we're spiritual, we're economic. We we have all these life moments in our life and we have to think about it holistically and make sure it all comes together. Um, and so oftentimes they think we have systems that are very narrowed. Um, we care for you only, you know, this elbow or this knee or um, your eyes and and we have to have it more integrated and then um, and housing and and do we have a job and and we have good education and then we got to figure out how we pay for things differently because we are we are systems are in all the the structural problems we're outlining are based on how we're paid whether it's a school, whether it's a healthcare provider, we have to think differently about how we're investing in community. Um, and so that would be my three areas. If we could start to have those conversations into the future, I think we can make a real, a real difference. I like it. I will say I like the top three summary method. Um, with this, I will hand it over to my fellow council member for mid forums. So take it away. All right. Awesome. 
Good afternoon. My name is Grisham Mehta, and I'm a junior at Seoul High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. Today's Youth Forum Council features a discussion about the disparities in healthcare in Cleveland. Today's panelists are Dr. Eric Charay, an, an assistant professor of social work and an adjunct professor of Africana Studies at Indiana University. And our other uh, panelist is Heather A. Stroll, the vice president of external staff affairs in the Sisters of Charity Healthcare System. Our, moder our moderator is Zoe a junior at Shaker Heights High School and a member of the Youth Forum Council. If you have any questions for, our, for, for any of our panelists, text them to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at City Club Youth. We'll try to work them in. May we have the first question, please? All right, so first question. Uh, this is just, again, either of you can really jump in. What are some of the ongoing changes in healthcare that make you optimistic about the future of the field? What are some things that you'd like to see change? So I, I'll share um, what I'm very optimistic about. There have been some really great grassroots organizations that have been popping up, um, especially in the areas of maternal health that provide what I call or what we call supportive systems. It's not about the delivery of care, but it's helping um, navigate the healthcare system, having a person centered approach to healthcare and really following individuals on their journey. Oftentimes that means we're also having people, you know, um, who have lived experience. So in the maternal health area, it's somebody who's had a child and navigated and had their own ups and downs with um, with having um, the birth of their child. Um, and the same thing, we have a medical respite facility that is trying to help homeless individuals um, navigate the healthcare system and stay out of the hospital. So those what supportive systems, I think, are um, really great because it's improving uh, the quality of life and the health outcomes. On the flip side, you know, they don't, none of those services are reimbursed. So uh, we need to think about how we, how we invest in those types of programs um, and see those as making a real difference long term, because um, we have to get out of, you know, acute medicine and get into um, really preventative and wellness. I mean, I think yeah to to that i think what what's um some of the ongoing changes that i think i'm optimistic about like i said earlier on some of the the statement the acknowledgement that now a lot more organizations are saying you know and that like you know nih uh, is now doing a lot more about structural racism that they're thinking about you know multi-dimensional framework in addressing health disparities and, and, and things like that and taking on you know public health approach to health which are very good um i think bold statement but um they are encouraging and and they show that yeah we can do some things i think the issue now is with the implementation and, and how they're going to be so i think um, to do that part of some of those pieces i think we can't really do a lot of these things without recognizing, I mean, um, digging deep into our history and how we are all traumatized by this history and how it shows it ugliness in every day and how we do things. And so I think um, 
connecting more practice to this statement and the actually, I mean, the ongoing changes, I think it's something that um, will be um, important moving forward. Awesome. All right, moving on to question two. Do you see healthcare ever becoming more similar to systems we see in Europe or Canada in order to help more people? Again, either person. I can call on someone. You want to go first? You want me to go first? I'm happy to, okay. you know, okay. I think, <laughs> um, look, you know, there are many countries in Europe who have, you know, some very interesting models of healthcare. Uh, my husband was born and raised in Hungary, and um, there are some real strengths around that and some real challenges. Finland, I also know very well. And, um, I love some of the the integration of health and social services in Finland. Um, so are there learnings in Canada, in Europe? Absolutely. I think the question is more, do we have the political will and can we find common ground as a society to really have some thoughtful conversations around these models and find common pathways that, that are win-wins versus a win-lose um, scenario? And I think we saw that really with the Affordable Care Act. I think we were really trying to expand coverage and learn from really Canada has obviously national health care. How do we start to ensure all? We had a hybrid approach, not the Canadian um um, pathway, but but then we spent a decade questioning whether that was the right answer or not. So I always say, let's make reform, and then we got to continue to make reform on the reforms as we evolve and we iterate together as a society to make change. Dr. Sherrod, do you have anything to add to that? I think I think um, that's um, an important issue, but it will also um, be something that it will require a lot more political will and and even that beyond that i think look at you have the american medical association um i think we know the history for quite a very long time have been so much resistance to progressive healthcare in in, in a lot of ways and and so i think some of those areas also need to be um, address and in acknowledging that I think we have America if you look at the all of the um, organization for economic cooperation and development countries America spend the highest in healthcare but we have the worst out health outcomes compared to all of them so I think again it comes down to if we since we are recognizing how uh capitalism and racist capitalism in particular drives a lot of these species we um once we recognize that and we're willing to make a change i think we can do it even better and then the other thing too is that means that we need to diversify healthcare i think in terms of i think the perspective under which we think healthcare is it shouldn't have to be a single model approach and one of it that even as we are thinking about this is oftentimes now when laws are passed and funds are generated, then it's creating room for other more private organizations to set up. But what is happening is instead of racial equity, we are also seeing racial outsourcing. So racial outsourcing were um, corporate model that is business oriented, not equity and justice focused are 
now you know recruiting and setting up in communities of color and also recruiting communities of color and attracting them not necessarily they want to make change but they want to also ex extract correctively extract the resources that are within those communities so i think if we're going to be able to make some of this we need to be able to guard around those things and resist them um all right, move, I think both of you mentioned this a little bit, especially you, Heather, uh, but the next question is, what are some of the things students can do to positively impact healthcare reform? Well, I have an 18-year-old daughter who's a senior in high school, and um, so we talk a lot about advocacy, and she's a, um, a compassionate heart who has, um, um, knows that she has a voice to share. And um, I, I always say to her, research the issues, look at both sides. Um, I think we've gotten um, too polarized as a society. And I think actually, if we get all the facts together and we analyze it together, we'll find a common path together. Um, don't be afraid to speak up. Don't be afraid to ask questions um, and, and just see your civic role. Uh, we have professional roles, we'll have personal lives, we'll also have a civic life. And I encourage students to think about their civic life and how they can give back um, to community. And, and always live what your comfort zone is in that. Dr. Sher? Yeah, I think, I think definitely, I think um, I will say all of us should, I mean, need to be aware that our personal is political and what is political is personal for us. And so that means that we need to be involved. Um, we have to be civically minded. And we, these days, I think we all, youth have access to, you know, um, multiple mediums. Um, the different social media platforms, you know, TikTok, um, YouTube, and all of the different kinds of the platforms that are available, I think they give youth an opportunity to amplify their voices at all times. But I think getting time to also um, learn, be familiar with what is happening and be more conscious. So when you, you are conscious and you understand what is happening, you can then make an informed decision. But the first call, um, it's on the ability to recognize that you have power. You are, all of us are very agentic. And if we can collectively um, mobilize our agency in, in reaching any of these platforms, I think we can make a huge difference. So youth, you this is um the time that you are in and i think it's a very um an opportune time for all of you with the different platforms available your voices count but invest yourself into the issues and act as Hertha said at your comfort level but don't be on the sideline um all right so moving on to the next question, um, how ooh, how have you used your platform to advance healthcare reform? Did you expect to be doing so when you began your careers? Heather, if you want to take this one first. 
<laughs> well, I spent 20 years in healthcare reform and I did not expect it. So, <laughs> sorry, the question made me chuckle. Um, so, um, I, you know, in 2003, I worked for a Catholic organization, the Sisters of Cherry Health System, and that the president at that time was Sister Judith Ann Karam. And she asked uh, asked me to, to partner with, with the team to advocate for, um, for the uninsured at that time. Um, it was a growing problem. We were almost to 50 million. I think it was like 46, 48 million uninsured at the time. We were seeing lives lost by um, not having the insurance card. And we certainly saw um, folks who were sicker and were delaying care. And um, that was a journey that I'm still on today. And um, and I feel that everything I've done is about health access because it's, yes, you want policy reform, but you also have to walk the talk. So we have to always look as an organization, you have to look internally. Are we expanding coverage for our own people? And we worked on that because um, when we looked introspectively, we realized we had some strength and we had some weaknesses that we had to, to walk the talk. Um, but I never imagined um, it, when I first started Sisters of Cherry, that would be my path. But um, it's been an exciting path and we have great accomplishments, but a lot of work to be to be done. Dr. Sherry? Well, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, yeah, it's some of the way that I've used my platform, obviously. Um, I do research on that and I write papers, I share, you know, and then with my teachings and both um, locally and uh, internationally. But I think I... I didn't really start to think about any of these kinds of things. And I think um, at the time, you know, I grew up in Ghana. I think this is where, like some of you, this is a good time to be more conscious of when I said the personal is political and the political is the personal. I, I didn't really have any thought initially about any of these things. And I was also educated more to, I mean, within a colonial lens. And to think that colonialism was a benefit to me and and some of these injustices are actually uh good until you know i write my way into having my master's and then a phd that's when a lot of these things you know became clear to me that these are all social injustice issues that um need to be tackled and so um for me, it came um, not as early as some of you are doing it now because at, at, my, at, my, at your age, I wasn't involved in things like this, you know? And so I think that's why I'm sharing some of these lessons. But I think now um, I, I'm seeing it that it's so connected to everything in life um, that we do. And so if something is a, a human right or something's a right, I think it's not somebody that has to give that to us. It's something that all that society needs to do is not to limit us to enjoy what is rightfully ours. It help is not somebody who created it. So nobody could create it. But what we are seeing is that we are living in a society where actions of uh, uh, systems and in um communities and staff organizations are actually playing putting so much strain on our ability to uh, access and enjoy that which is our right and that 
it's something that I think we have to talk about. We are not asking people to give us help. We are asking systems and others to take off the restrictions and the roadblocks that they have placed on our way to enjoy and experience that which we are made to have. So that's not something that's like a big demand. Mm -hmm. um, I think going off of this, and this is also a very personal question for me. I mean, before this conversation, I can say the extent of what I knew about healthcare is that at 26, you got to figure something else out. Um, you both kind of touched on education um, as being a key factor for how we kind of get at the root of this problem. What would you say specifically, like for someone like me, who's a junior in high school, how does one become more educated about these issues and also just kind of just the broader picture of healthcare in general, I suppose? Dr. Chair, if you want to take this one first, if we're switching I, out. I think, I think you can start just by being observant, even in what is around you, in your immediate surrounding. Just take a, a more critical look at how things are organized um, and how those organizations, what are some of the processes, the norms and things that flow through the structures. Like even in your school, just pay attention to how are even your classrooms organized? Whose voice counts? Whose voice doesn't count? Just by even the mere design of just the, the, the classroom, I mean, um, environment. And what do those things mean? Then you look at some of those pieces, how do they factor into family connections? And because when you're thinking about, when you see somebody beside you, Sometimes I think one thing that we, we are made to think that, oh, we're just individual, but nobody is on their own. Nobody's an island because I am a part of a family, a larger system, a community. So if I am sitting down there, I am bringing in pieces of the communities that I am part of, the family that I am part of. So once you observe me, you see me, it gives you glimpses of things that are affecting the bigger pie that I am a part of. So by those mere observations, it can help to see things that are happening and that can make me to ask questions, you know, about, okay, what happens at where you live? What happens at where you are? Or tell me more about yourself. And when you begin to pay attention to people as they say their narratives and you're listening to those narratives, not to guide them, you learn about how practices, processes and the structure that they are involved and their interaction with those structures and how that is shaping their life. And that provides you a window of opportunity to begin to think more critically and think about taking action. So I would answer, I, I made a list of four. Um, first of all, know yourself and know your own health. Um, and that's really critical, understanding your your nutrition, your lifestyle, um, healthy eating, active living um, is really critical. And the more you understand your own health, and that includes, by the way, your own mental health, your own physical health, um, the better, uh, because then that, that helps you. Once you understand your yourself, you can understand others. Um, I would also just be inquisitive with 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 um, with your doctor, if you have a primary care 
their doctor or you know if you have any other clinicians if you have a therapist ask the them their insights into into health and and, and health and wellness and 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 how we can make our world a better place uh thirdly um I would definitely, I, I always encourage folks to um, look at original sources. Go to, uh, there is um, Healthy Neo, which is a website around uh, our community's health. It's um, it's just a data collection um, um, source that really tries to um, pull data from different sources to help us understand um, our community health needs, really. Um, but it has a lot of great information. Um, but if you're hearing about something that you care about, mental health, behavioral health, um, eating disorders, you know, find sources. They're really um, 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 original sources that uh, are doing the research frontline to understand those issues. Um, that is not to say there's not, uh, there There are some tremendous resources here in Cuyahoga County, and I would be remiss not to give a shout out uh, to the Center for Community Solutions, who does a, a really a tremendous job in um, uh, developing a nonpartisan, um, they research and, and put out information in, an, in a nonpartisan manner about critical issues that we all care about. Um, and so finding nonpartisan um, um, neutral sources is really important. Um, so I will say, I believe this is a similar question to one we had earlier, um, but when you first began your research slash your career, did you expect to end up in the position you were in? Were you, I think what this question is trying to ask is like, did you anticipate being a teacher or were you, did you always know you wanted to work in an advocacy kind of position? I think, I think some of them evolved with time. Um, like I said, even for me, um, I, I didn't, I knew I wanted to do something around children and families. I mean, that was I mean, something that I had thought of in creating supportive context for families to try because I know families act like a more comprehensive welfare system if they are supported, but they also need support. So that was how I kind of saw it and, and then the more I, I went into that, then I realized that, oh, the families are also nested in context. So when I study parenting, parent, a good parenting or competent parenting practices are dependent on the contexts and the affordances that those contexts allowed them to have. So then that was where I began to see that well. So then, and those contexts are not just something that just happened, they are man-made contexts that we all inhabit. And so that was when some of these things began to click in for me. I remember, I think in my, when I, one time I was at a school and I, the principal had called me for um, one of my kids. This was actually, I was in the foster care and, and then said, oh, this child is having an issue. So come and take the child out because as a foster manager, that was my, my group. But, that made me feel how parents feel. So I asked, I asked the, I asked the person initially. She didn't say she was a principal, but then I said, "So what have you done about this issue that you're telling me about this child that you're asking me to come and pick her?" She said, "Do you know who is talking to you? I'm the principal." She mentioned her name, and I said, "Well, I'm glad you called." And I said, "Well, I know 
America does not subscribe to the Convention on the Right of the Child. But education is a child right. That's why in this country, there's a compulsory law for children to be in school. So, and I, by the way, my understanding is that you and the family are partners and the outcome of that partnership is this child's development. So now that you are calling me or you are calling the parent to come and pick the child, what is your role in this child's development? And she was quiet on the phone, you know? She, after that, she never asked me to come and pick the, 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 the kid. She, anytime there's something, she'll call me. Then she'll ask me, what do you think we should do? You know, so that also helped me. And I began to know, see that if you also know what you're doing, I think it helps you, you know, like they say, knowledge is power. I think it's important. That's why all of us, you know, all of you investing in what you do so that when you are confronted, you are, when you know, people know you, you know the truth and you know what is there. It's, they know they can just bully you just like that. And so that provided me a very good, I think, window to see that, wow, I think I need to really up my game so that I'll be able to be effective in these kinds of work. So those things evolved, but the more it got one, then I found that actually I, I felt the passion, the joy when I see things are done the way that they up to them, they help family. So that's how, you know, it has been evolving. Mm. Heather, do you want to share your story with our last minute? Sure. I, I, I had no idea where I'd be in this seat when I first started my career. Um, but I will share a story that I like the storytelling that you did, Eric, um, that um, when I was just graduating from college, uh, I met an alum who was this amazing woman. She uh, done all this work in the nonprofit space, had helped on the AIDS quilt and just did, did tremendous work. So I remember asking her kind of a similar question. And she said, Heather, you know, my life was like this, this, pa all these patches and making a quilt. And she said, now I look back and I have a beautiful quilt, but I had no idea that I would have that quilt. And she said, my only encouragement to you is when a door opens, you take it, you walk through it, you embrace opportunities, um, be confident, don't, you'll figure it out. You're a smart person. Just open the, when those doors open, um, walk through it and you'll have that great patchwork. So the sky is the limit for, for, for you all. And I hope, I hope you achieve it. I think that is a beautiful note to end our forum on. And with that, I will pass it on to Ellie for our uh, closer. Take it away. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Eleanor Ramos. I'm a junior at Riverside High School and a graduate of Lakeland Community College. I'm the current vice president of the Youth Forum Council. Uh, today, we have enjoyed a youth forum panel discussing reform and disparities in healthcare. I would like to thank our panelists. Uh, Dr. Eric Kayer, who has a PhD from Indiana University, and Heather A. Shaw, who is the Vice President of External Staff Affairs for the Sisters of Charity Health System. Our moderator today was Youth Forum Council Member Zoe Ellenbogen. Uh, today's forum was sponsored by AT&T. Thank you for your support. City Club Youth Forums also received additional support from the Doris C. Malcheski Trust, Bank of America, PNC, Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and OEI. We thank you for your additional ongoing support. Join us on May 12th for our next youth forum on the Stop the Hate essay contest. This forum is now adjourned.